Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Joe Stoltz, and in this week's episode, I sit down with author Larry Ferraro to discuss his book, Brothers at Arms, American Independence, and the Men of France and Spain Who Saved It. Now, just to let you know, uh, we still have tickets available for the June 7th Ford Evening Book Talk with author Eric Motley, who will discuss his book, Madison Park, A Place of Hope. Uh, and so that's exciting. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media at GW Books. And if you are so inclined, please make sure to like and uh, share uh, and review this podcast. Thank you. All right, Larry. Well, thank you for, for joining us here. Um, could we uh, start off by having you sort of just give an overview about what your book is about? Uh, the book, Brothers at Arms, uh, American Independence and the Men of France and Spain Who Saved It, uh, says a lot right in the title. It is about uh, the individuals from uh, these two nations, France and Spain, who worked together with the Americans to ensure that uh, Britain uh, was defeated in the War of American Independence and assure that America became recognized as a sovereign nation. Um, it. I, I make no bones about um, their specific role in the title. Um, they absolutely saved the uh, American Republic at its infancy. And what I like to tell people uh, is that America could never have won the war without France, and France never would have fought the war without Spain. Uh, the critical message is that America right from the beginning depended upon its alliances with its overseas partners to uh, work together to defeat a common adversary. Um, France had been very interested in what was happening in this uh, colony for uh, many years uh, after the Seven Years' War, which, was, uh, which preceded the uh, War of American Independence. Uh, we called it the French and Indian War because they were the, uh, the enemies at the time. We were British colonists. France and the Indian uh, nations were uh, our adversaries. Ten years later, um, the tides uh, and, uh, uh, change, and now uh, the Americans are, ally, are, are arrayed against their British masters, and they turn to their former adversaries, the French, for help. So that is uh, how the book begins, and that's really uh, what the book continues on as a, uh, as a story, how it looks to France first, to Spain as well, um, and then over the course of this War of American Independence, which lasted uh, about eight years, um, America was fighting not by itself against Britain, but uh, allied uh, or partnered or in other uh, respects uh, working to the same goal with uh, five other nations. Um, and uh, Britain uh, was fighting this war without an ally to its name. That's great. And I mean, it's one of the things I really love with your project is really how it brings in that international aspect to, I think, what too many Americans they sort of think of as you know, at best a local conflict, maybe a civil war between Britain and, and its colonies. But, you know, they they feel, I think a lot of people sort of think that the, the revolution sort of happens in a bubble. And that's, you know, of course, not the case. There's all these uh, fascinating international pieces to it. Um, 
Now, you're an engineer by training. What led you to this project? I'm a naval architect by training and by uh, profession. I always like to point out that um, uh, you know, shipbuilding was probably one of the oldest forms of, of engineering. And uh, I was working on my doctoral thesis um, quite, quite some time ago. It's almost, uh, almost going on to uh, 15 years. And as I was working on uh, shipbuilding in the age of sail, that's what I was uh, uh, doing at Imperial College London, kind of extending my uh, regular profession, which is designing warships for the U.S. Navy. I also worked in the French Navy and the British Navy on exchange. So I had a pretty good idea of how we design warships today, and I was very interested in the, in the history. So I'm uh, uh, diving into archival um, uh, resources in many different countries while I'm uh, studying in England. And uh, what I find is that the French and the Spanish navies, soon after the Seven Years' War that I had just mentioned, uh, uh, decided that they wanted to bring Britain down uh, to uh, its former level. Britain, after the Seven Years' War, had uh, almost decimated its, uh, its, its adversaries in Europe. Uh, France lost Canada, Spain, um, lost Florida, they lost uh, other territory. Um, they wanted revenge, and they actually used the word uh, in their correspondence, revanche. One of the things they did was, as uh, Spain and France together, they were allied. It was called the Bourbon Family Alliance, both families uh, on the, on the uh, uh, both monarchs, rather, came from the same family. They were descended from Louis XIV, the French Sun King. So they were cousins, and they would refer to each other as, as brother and, and cousin. Um, they knew that they could not defeat Britain and bring it down a notch, each by itself, but their combined navies could. And so they made a very concerted effort to integrate their shipbuilding and their uh, artillery production. They actually sent engineers from Spain to, uh, from France to Spain to coordinate that so that the French Navy and the Spanish Navy would act as one navy. Um, it was NATO before NATO was, was the idea. Now, at the same time, um, uh, they were also sending spies to Britain to figure out where they would carry out this revenge. They would do so on British soil. They had every intention of attacking and invading Britain, not to occupy it, but to uh, really uh, bring its economy to its knees, which would bring Britain to a peace table. Spain hoped to get back Gibraltar, which was the, uh, which was and still is the peninsula that guards the entrance to the Mediterranean. France simply wanted to um, make certain that Britain no longer had a say over uh, diplomatic uh, matters in Europe. France wanted to reoccupy its position as the center of power in Europe. So each one had very different goals. I saw this as I was doing the my study for the, um, you know, again, shipbuilding in the age of sail. I thought it was very interesting. But I put it away for a while, and then my kids started to go to school, and I started to look at their textbooks, and, you know, all you saw was, uh, you know, but, Americans were defeated, they were defeated, and then suddenly they won uh, against uh, Cornwallis at Yorktown. And oh, by the way, Lafayette was there to help out. Well, I knew, of course, that that was wrong. And so when I started to look for books and articles and television shows and movies 
that showed a little bit more balance, I, it, it, that, that search came up dry. Um, fast forward, I'd already, uh, fast forward to a few years ago, I'd written a couple of books already um, on completely separate subjects having to do with um, science, technology, um, astronomy. And as, as any author will tell you, the first thing that happens when you finish your book and it's put into print is your agent comes and says, what's next? And so I was casting about for an idea and I happened to mention the fact that very little has been written about the roles of, of Spain and France in the American war and I thought there might be a story there. And she said, okay, send me a proposal. And I said, well, give me, give me about a year. Let me, let me figure out what the story is. And so for about a year, maybe a little bit longer, I was dragging my family up and down the coast of the United States to uh, Revolutionary War battlefields, Ticonderoga, Saratoga, took them to Valley Forge. I took them south uh, to Savannah. I, they didn't object, but you know, I think they were a little bit tired of the Revolutionary War by, by that point. And after also uh, doing a lot of other digging in archival and, and other resources, I found there really was a story, and it was far more extensive than I had ever imagined. And then um, the, uh, the, the proposal um, went through a few iterations. We found a wonderful publisher, um, and then you know, to, to, to compress a whole bunch of, of events into um, you know, one, one sentence, uh, I worked with uh, Alfred A. Knopf and my, uh, my editor, we crafted a story, and it came out in 2016. So I've been very happy with the result. Well, I'm glad you you brought up uh, the, the the notion of you know you were looking for for TVs and TV shows and movies that uh, you know would mention this aspect. Because one of the things when I was reading your book that was occurring to me um, was uh, sort of Game of Thrones, but with uh, maybe less beheadings and and more silk and frills. Uh, because you know, like you, you just alluded to before, right? Like everybody's got an angle they're working, um, and there's all these great major and minor characters from you know ones that uh, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of, like Louis the Sixteenth. You've probably heard of him. You know, doesn't end well for him. Uh, to you know, guys like Beaumarchais, the playwright that uh, writes *Marriage of Figaro* and *Barbara Seville*. Um, what other sort of characters like that were, were you really excited to sort of highlight? I'm going to start um, at what I think is the, the top of the list in terms of the um, individuals who uh, made the events happen the way they did. And right at the top of the list is the Comte de Vergennes. He was the French foreign minister and, and uh, Louis XVI's right-hand person. To put this into context, uh, in 1775, when the fighting in the United States broke out, Lexington and Concord, um, Louis XVI was still very young. He had just uh, uh, come to the throne the year before. He didn't know um, politics, either domestic or international, and he uh, was very dependent upon his advisors to help him shape what he thought was um, the proper policy for France. Vergen had a very specific idea about French interests, and they were um, quite international. Um, he'd been an ambassador for almost all of his career. He didn't actually know very much about local 
French politics, but he saw um, that France needed to regain its place as the center of power in Europe. I already mentioned that. Um, some of that had been uh, done through the marriage of Marie Antoinette with Louis XVI. Marie Antoinette was the daughter of uh, the um, Empress of Austria, and the Austrian Empire was a major player in uh, Europe, and so that helped to solidify some of uh, France's uh, alliances and power um, dynamics, but he also wanted to make sure that Britain did not have a say with other uh, uh, monarchies like Prussia, and of course, at the, at the, um, at the top of, of everybody's concerns was Russia, because Russia was trying to get itself involved in local European politics. They had just invaded Crimea a few years before. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait, are, are, we, are we, which, which year are we talking? I'm sorry, yeah. we're, we're, we're still in the past. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, for me, the most interesting thing that, uh, that uh, Vergen, and uh, again, he's the most interesting person, and the most interesting thing he was able to do was balance supporting the Americans because they were unable to fend for themselves. As I say right at the beginning of my book, um, the Americans didn't have, uh, uh, they didn't have rifles, they didn't have cannon, they didn't even have gunpowder, which is the most important ingredient when you're trying to fight a land war, and they certainly didn't have a navy. I'll get to the navy in a second. Um, so Vergen could balance supporting the Americans keeping the European continent uh, from breaking out into war, keeping the Russians at bay, making sure that Britain didn't launch a preemptive attack, and he was able to do all of this um, astonishingly well. Um, I mentioned navies. So the second and uh, important thing to understand about this war it was, is that it was always going to be a naval war. Britannia rules the waves, remember? So if you're fighting Britain in the 18th century, it's a naval war, and America didn't have a navy. The thing that made um, uh, the, the, the balance of the war turn from the Americans, uh, from, sorry, from the British to the Americans, was the entry of the Spanish and the French navies together in the war, because um, at first, uh, Britain had un, uh, uncontested rule over the entire coast of America. They could bring troops. Um, from England uh, to the American shores. They could move troops around from New York to Pennsylvania to Boston. They weren't um, constrained by, by another navy. First, France came in uh, with their navy, and that um, rocked uh, the, the British back on their heels. Then the Spanish came in in 1779, and now you had um, the British, again, without an ally to their name, having to not only defend the American colonies and supply them. They had to defend, defend their own nation, their, the, the British Isles, from invasion. Because remember that plan after the Seven Years' War to, for France and Spain to uh, attack and invade England? That was dusted off, taken off the shelf, and put into action. So they had to protect against invasion. They had to protect their sugar colonies in the Caribbean. These sugar plantations were the main source of wealth for Britain. America wasn't where the money was. It was the, uh, it was the Caribbean. If they did not protect those assets, their economy would have collapsed. They also had um, colonies in Africa and in India, and India was becoming incredibly important. So you have a British Navy, and that's really the source of their strength. Always remember that Britain's Navy was second to none 
Britain's army was good, but its navy was the real um, fear factor. I mean, what Britain's army, I think, tops out pre-war at like 45,000? Um, on 50, the continent, 000? it's about that. And, and in terms of their capability... Um, By context, like the French have like what, uh, 110, oh, 120,000 person okay. army on the books yeah, ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, Britain was depending upon um, uh, soldiers from its uh, principalities mm -hmm. in, in the German states, the, what we call the Hessians. Um, and they, they really were, um, in terms of a, a strong professional army, uh, the best, no, no, no question. Um, so a lot of what Britain was able to do um, during many of these wars was uh, augment its forces by being able to move them where they were needed in a very timely manner, bring logistics to bear. You know, uh, an army uh, is, is always about logistics, and the Navy was what was providing all of that. So when France and Spain enter the war, it spreads the British Navy, in particular, um, so thin that they really can't carry out all of the uh, activities they need to protect all of Britain's interests. And ultimately, that's what brings uh, Britain to the peace table, the realization that they cannot continue to protect their most important assets, the Caribbean, as I mentioned, and India was becoming far more important by, by this point to the British than the American colonies. And I don't know if I'll have the opportunity to use this quote, so I'll use it now. Um, there's a history by, uh, I think it was India's first Prime Minister, Nehru. Um, he wrote uh, History of India uh, back in the 1940s. And uh, in there, he says to the effect that the uh, gaining of independence from uh, Britain by the Americans coincides with the loss of independence mm -hmm. uh, by, uh, uh, from the British by India, because that's exactly when the uh, attention shifts from one to the other. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I mean, what, I mean, this is when we talk about the, you know, the split between the first British Empire and the second British Empire. Uh, even in British historiography, they sort of recognize that everything changes once they have to sort of realign how their, their imperial structure is going to be um, structured. Yep. That's why you need an editor. Um, that's great. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things when, uh, when we have groups come in here uh, to the Washington Library, lots of times since we're in the D.C. area, we'll get uh, you know, some folks from like the, uh, the, War the National War College or uh, the satellite campus for Command and General Staff College at Fort Belvoir. Uh, will come here, and, and one of the things I, you know, always sort of try and point out to them, you know, is that the way British doctrine was set to fight, to, you know, for for um, their their armed forces is, you know, the navy is first and foremost. They have a small professional army that they can send in as sort of a core force, but then the idea is to get local assets to to augment that core force, uh, which is of course one of the problems they have. In the War of American Independence, is that what you're actually fighting is your traditional local assets that you you don't have access to, um, and that's one of the things I think you know to to now sort of talk the American side. Um, you know, what is your take on? Because uh, obviously you have really ardent uh, ideologues. I don't mean that in a negative way, but ideologues like uh, you know a, a, a John Hancock or a Samuel Adams that you know will 
we, we have a great cause and you know we'll just go out there and fight and we'll shoot some guys in red coats and you know we'll get we'll get our independence and then you have more sort of policy realists like a like a, a Benjamin Franklin who who sort of understand sort of the, the bigger picture uh, macro politics of the world um, when you were sort of researching your book among the Americans who did, who got this who who saw all the pieces on the chessboard um, that, that this European assistance was going to be so important? Um, foremost, George Washington. No we like question. that answer. Yeah. <laughs> it, no, and, and that's not because I'm yeah. here in George Washington's, uh, you know, uh, 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 home. He uh, was, the more I've read about Washington, it, the more I'm convinced that he was the only person who could have led the country through that time, not because, as many people have pointed out, he was a particularly brilliant tactical general. I'm sure that there are... Uh, um, his uh, win-loss rating left yeah, his, things it, to be desired. Yeah, but th th there's a lot of people who, who love to uh, talk about the decisions that he should have made and didn't. Um, I am far more interested in the fact that he was able to grasp the larger strategic picture uh, right away, um, long before... Uh, Carl von Clausewitz um, said, and then his wife, remember Clausewitz, his wife was the one who actually edited and published uh, On War, von Krieg. Most people don't give credit to Frau Clausewitz. Um, he said war is the continuation of politics by other means and variations on that. And Washington fully understood what that meant on many different levels because he not only had to keep a fractious army together uh, in the face of a Congress that just did not know how to pull itself um, out of its um, factional fighting. And a lot of what you're talking about there is the factions that mm -hmm. disagreed, not just on um, should we be accepting French help, should we be rejecting French help, um, what kind of help should we accept, but they also disagreed on just about every other part of the war. What are we, you know, what were the war aims? Uh, I think Washington understood how to keep um, that side of the uh, overall equation uh, at least satisfied. Uh, he was able to keep his troops uh, uh, clothed, fed. He understood the logistics side. Um, the French, and they were the first volunteers who came over. People from all over Europe came. But uh, it was particularly difficult in the first few uh, months when Philadelphia was flooded with all these French volunteers who demanded a, uh, a position as high-ranking officers because that was what they had been in their previous life. Uh, this, by the way, for the French was not unusual. These were not mercenaries the way we would call it. Um, it was quite common for uh, entire regiments to fight on one side of, uh, or rather for another crown, that's what the Hessians were. They weren't mercenaries, even though the Declaration of Independence calls them that. Britain uh, brought an entire, entire regiments who fought for, um, for Britain. And in the, in the case of the French officers, this was a normal way of uh, fighting. But there was just no room in that complex political dynamic of who gets a generalship. Generalships were not uh, awarded by by um, ability, but rather each state got to choose uh, uh, a certain number of generals, so where are you going to fit these people in? So he had to balance that. He didn't want to reject the French because he knew that they were supplying not just uh, people but arms 
You mentioned Beaumarchais, mm -hmm. and um, if we have a chance to talk more about him. Um, but he was a key player, a playwright turns, turned arms dealer, who, by the way, just to be very clear, was doing always Vergen's bidding. Mm -hmm. um, Beaumarchais had the idea, but Vergen was the one who um, pointed him in the right direction and shaped what Beaumarchais would do or would not do. He Vergen was controlling every aspect. Okay, now I've yeah. put in my plug for Vergen, and the reason why we have to have more things named for Vergen in this nation. Now let me get back to Washington. For me... Who's got a, plenty of things named? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, only uh, <laughs> uh, the only thing named for him in the United States that I could find is the city of Vergen in, in Vermont. Hmm. As a ship designer, I would love to see a warship named for him. Um, and I have a cunning plan to name a... Uh, I hope the, the Navy would choose to name a warship for the town of the city of Vergen, Vermont. See, if, you'd, if we'd had this podcast like a week ago, we could have... If I'd known you wanted this, we could have, you know, we, we just had Macron here at Mount Vernon. We, we could have put in a plug for this. Yes, yeah, I mean, we've had warships named for the Comte de Grasse. Yeah. It was the sailor in Lafayette. We had a, a ballistic missile submarine for him. Um, we even have had a, a warship named Rochambeau, who was the general, who was uh, really Washington's equal. Back to Washington. Um, as, a, uh, as a Navy person, his ability to understand the importance of a Navy his ability to understand that the United States could not produce the kind of Navy that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British because we simply didn't have the kind of, um, not shipbuilding, but, but uh, resources and, and manpower, um, training, etc., that would allow us to bring those kinds of ships into action. Um, and therefore, his understanding of the importance of the French and the Spanish fleets as a counter to the British never ceases to surprise me. It's rare to find um, we an, don't army use, officer. Uh, an army officer. <laughs> Nowadays, with joint training, they are far more integrated into the way um, joint operations work than ever before. But George Washington fought jointly, and that was very rare in the 18th century. I can point to many people um, in, the, in, in his era, the Howe brothers, <laughs> Even though one was a general and one was the admiral, yeah. they didn't necessarily think um, army and navy combined all that well. Um, so, to kind of close out yeah, yeah. Uh, this, it's it is absolutely um, uh, Washington who's able to pull all of those pieces I just mentioned: tactical, I mentioned political, logistical, and uh, joint operations. So um, the fact that Washington understood what the French and the Spanish could bring to bear, what to expect from them, what not to expect from them was just as important. They could not come and fight our battle on land for us, but they could do what they were best at, and that's to um, make certain that the British Navy was spread um, too thin. And by the way, this was not George Washington's doing. Eventually. Uh, Britain was fighting in the North American theater with the French and the Americans. They were fighting in uh, the Gulf and the Caribbean against the Spanish and the French. They were fighting um, in England in home waters against uh, a Spanish and French invasion, which failed. They were fighting in the North Sea and the Caribbean against the Dutch, which they pulled into the, uh, into the fight. And they were fighting in um, India against the Kingdom of Mysore, um, allied with the, um, the French. 
um, to uh, keep their um, power base uh, from Sri Lanka today, Ceylon at the time, all the way to modern-day Bangladesh. And oh, by the way, um, Catherine the Great had instated what was called, oh, and, and sorry, I missed the, uh, the Mediterranean. They were fighting to keep Gibraltar. They did. They fought to keep Menorca, the island. They failed. Spanish, the Spanish uh, and French forces took it. And finally, they were trying to keep Russia uh, from uh, entering too far into this because they had created this uh, league of armed neutrality, a, a, a flotilla of ships which was supposed to guard these neutral powers from being um, attacked by the British who did not want supplies coming from neutral nations to their enemies. So all of this, and Britain had not an ally to its name. And that's what really brought Britain to the peace table. That's great. Um, now, we could do the more academic-y thing and discuss, um, you know, what were the biggest challenges to the Bourbon Alliance, uh, or uh, why do you think the Franco-Spanish aspect of the war has been so understudied? Uh, but with the time we have left, uh, I think... Uh, we should really just go for the fun thing, which is maybe talk about how a French playwright and a London transvestite helped create the United States. So would you like to? Absolutely. So we're talking about the transvestite, the Chevalier d'Eon, um, the playwright, uh, Beaumarchais, and of course, as I said at the top, um, Vergen. Uh, d'Eon was part of uh, something that the previous king, Louis XV of France, had in place during the Seven Years' War, and that was called um, the King's Secret. It was a, a, an alternate spy network um, that was intended uh, to report solely to the king, not to his foreign minister, about how uh, foreign politics was going to be carried out. And Deon was uh, the uh, attaché, as it were, the, the spy in London during the Seven Years' War. Um, he'd gotten a... Um, uh, the set of plans that the uh, after the war that the British were uh, sorry the French were going to use to invade England and had those plans after the Seven Years' War when there was supposed to be peace between France and Britain had those plans gotten out <laughs> that would have put paid to this uh, fragile alliance and Dayon kept um, uh, uh, threatening to reveal those plans so finally. Um, after several years, Beaumarchais was able to broker a deal where um, uh, Deon, who uh, after the war started to uh, dress as a woman for various reasons, probably not having to do anything with his own um, gender perception, but more to keep himself uh, from being mm -hmm. uh, forcibly brought back to France. Uh, he managed to broker a deal where Deon turned over those secrets and Beaumarchais was able to get them back to France. This made Beaumarchais, who'd uh, been in jail a couple of times for um, poking his finger in the uh, royal eye a few, and uh, the aristocratic eye a few, a few too, too many times with his plays, it made him now um, an important person. But while he was in England, he started listening to the Americans who'd been over there with their olive branch petition and a few other entreaties talking about um, the insults that they were enduring at the hands of the British. And he had this brilliant idea that um, he could uh, create a, uh, arms, um, an arms supply uh, company, a really a front, 
and he had some very tricky finances involved that would involve trading arms for tobacco, make lots of money, of which he would profit mostly, um, that the crown would also help, and oh, by the way, it would um, also aid France's interests. And he had this really uh, uh, convoluted plan that um, you know, if he was going to a venture capitalist today, they would, they would throw him out. But Vergennes listened to this plan. But it sounds like a good French comic opera plan. Oh, it's a wonderful, right? <laughs> and, and Beaumarchais, uh, I think, could have, could have made hay with, uh, with the idea. Um, in fact, he, I think he made a couple of allusions to this in some of his later plays. Here's the important thing. Vergennes was able to take this, um, <laughs> this, this uh, convoluted, completely unworkable plan and turn it to his own ends. He took the idea and made it work for France's interest, which was to keep the Americans supplied with arms to stop um, the British from helping out another set of nations which were threatening to go to war on the European continent, which he did not want. Vergennes did not want any distractions in Europe. And by supplying arms to the Americans, he kept the British from uh, extending themselves too far. They were occupied in North America they couldn't go and help all these other people. And by that nice little um, juggling, or as I um, often like to point out, uh, these pieces of a jigsaw puzzle uh, fit so nicely together, and the jigsaw puzzle had just been invented uh, at this point, so I think Virgin may have even known it. He was able to take that plan by the transvestite, or transdresser, that's really the, the mm -hmm. more accurate term, and the, uh, and the playwright, and turn it to his own ends, and in the process, help the nascent United States fight off the, the British until uh, a full alliance um, could be reached. That's fantastic. And you know, as you mentioned before, uh, none of this has been put into film yet. So if anyone would like to talk to Larry uh, you know, about getting the, uh, the, the rights to, uh, to his book for uh, Yep. Putting this on the, on the film, I'm sure we can help facilitate I'm, that. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to have my agent uh, <laughs> uh, you know, talk to, I'll have my agent talk to your agent, yeah. uh, and uh, I have a wonderful agent, so uh, I, I know it'll be quite successful. Nice. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on to the show and talking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.